We are in the book of Revelation. We are living in the book of Revelation. We are at the verge of the going up to meet the Lord in the air. The church is about ready to take off and go home. The world is in a mess. Everything's going crazy. The, the, the leaders seem to be out of their mind. There's a spirit of confusion in the land. And the only people that's really got the sound mind and a, you know, that spirit of peace and joy is the Christian. Because God has not given us a, a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And Christians have that spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. And so we're going to be speaking out of the 16th chapter of Revelation. It's easy to find. It is right beside the book of Jude, and it is between the book of Jude and your everlasting future. The book of Revelation is incredible, and this chapter 16 is amazing. I've been so excited about sharing what the Lord has revealed to me. And uh, how many have enjoyed the studies in the book of Revelation? I'm going to answer some questions today for you to help you understand the book of Revelation. We're going to start reading with verse 10, and we're going to read the rest of this. I think it's verse 21 of this chapter. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word, the book of Revelation. If you haven't a Bible with you, it is. We've always got God's Word up in lights here on the screen. Verse 10, and the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and its kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they repented not of their deeds. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. And the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, that's the devil, out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, out of the mouth of the false prophet. And they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth under the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into the place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great that the city, the great city, this is Jerusalem, was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. 
and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hell out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent at a hundred pounds. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hell. For the plague thereof was exceeding great. This 16th chapter, before I give you the title of the message, this 16th chapter is a chapter that's showing us what's happening on the earth just before the return of Jesus Christ. And when I say return, I'm not talking about the rapture. I'm talking about the second coming of Jesus to planet earth. The church is coming with him at that time in Revelation chapter 19. God is preparing in, verse, in chapter 16, God prepares for Armageddon. You may be seated. In this 16th chapter, God is preparing Armageddon. He's preparing the final judgment upon planet earth. He's making the way for his son Jesus Christ to return. We need to understand that this 16th chapter, the seven vows of the wrath of God, seven angels pour out their vial, and other translations call it the bowls of the wrath of God. But you remember in the 15th chapter, God emptied the temple. The angels left the temple and God stayed in the temple and everybody else was ushered out. And the temple of God was filled with the glory of God. God was in that temple alone because he knew that what was about to transpire on the planet was so horrendous that God needed some time alone to grieve and to shed tears himself. Even the angels complimented in the 16th chapter that what God was doing was correct. A voice came out of the temple saying to the seven angels that had the vows of the wrath of God to go pour him out. That same voice coming out of the temple of God who is God Almighty, when the vows are poured out, he says, it is done. And the last pouring out of the vow would be the seventh vow. And it would be so powerful and so earth-shaking that the whole earth would go into a topographical landmass change. As God returns, His Son Jesus Christ comes with the church of Jesus Christ and a myriad of angels to fight in the battle of Armageddon in Revelation chapter 19. Chapter 17 and chapter 18 is, are pretty much parenthetical chapters. They're, it's talking about, well, chapter 17 is talking about the harlot, the Babylon, the great harlot, and its destruction, its raising up and its judgment. The 18th chapter is talking about Babylon rising up, Babylon being the economic center of the world, a political power. In the, in the 17th chapter, it's a religious or spiritual uh, Babylon of a harlot. But then in the 18th chapter, it is the Babylon the Great, the economic center of the world, political economic center. It shows the collapse of those in chapter 17 and 
18, and they are parenthetical chapters. And then chapter 19, Jesus Christ comes from glory. He descends out of heaven with his church and myriads of angels to fight in the battle of Megiddo or Armageddon. Arma means a hill. I'm told that 32, maybe 33 um, generations had been built on that one hill of Har. Means a hill. Geddon means Megiddo, the valley. Below Jerusalem is uh, the Hedron Valley. I'm sure you've heard in the book of Joel, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And I'm sure that you've heard uh, mentioned the, the, the valley of uh, decision that Joel talks about and the valley of Jezreel. All these merged together, making one massive place for the gathering of a massive army to come against Israel and more than that, to come against the God of Israel, the God of creation. And so God goes into his temple in the 15th chapter and there he mourns what is happening. He takes them out. We're not going to go into that because we've already talked about that. But I want to just ask you a question. You don't have to answer me, but you know in your heart, if you've ever asked this question, how could, how could this be in the age of jets? How could this be in the age of missiles? How could this possibly happen in the day and the technology that we have today with the missiles and programs and how they could just pinpoint a car from, from a thousand miles away or 2,000 miles away and hit the target. How could this be? How could there possibly be 200 ground troops or 200,000 ground troops, 200 million demons coming, 200 million uh, people in, in their array to come against the Jerusalem? The ninth chapter, and we'll be talking about that a little bit later on, but the ninth chapter talks about there would be such a massive group of people that would come together that it would be 200 million. And John describes those 200 million as demons or horsemen or the creatures that are empowering the armies that come from the east and from the high north down against Jerusalem together there in the valley of Megiddo. You've asked the question. I know you have because I have. How could there be a ground battle? How could there be this battle that he's talking about, blood to the horse's bridle, to the Hedron Valley, and 200 miles long, blood flow? How could it be? Will it be rain in water? Will it be gushing from the mountains at that time? The sun will be seven times hotter. Glaciers will melt. Cities in America, cities around the world will be merged underwater. The Ararat mountains will dissolve and melt. The great Euphrates River will be flooding and raging down off of the mountains of Mount Ararat and the Icelands and the places of where the Euphrates and Tigris and the rivers get their water from those snow. And Mount Iret, there is snow 24 hours a day, 52 weeks a year, 365 days a year, there, year round, 
Generation after generation, it's always capped with snow. But when you have a seven times hotter sun scorching the flesh of man and one of these bowls is poured out, you're going to see those snow caps melt. You talk about global warming. This talks about global warming during the Great Tribulation. You hear people say, well, we're in the Great Tribulation. Not a chance. We're, we're having it too easy. Everybody's got it too easy. This is not the Great Tribulation. If anyone tells you we're in the Great Tribulation, anyone tells you, well, we're at the sixth uh, blowing of the trumpet, we're at the fifth blowing of the trumpet, they haven't got a clue. I want you to know when this Great Tribulation takes place, it'll be like a thief in the night. The church will be gone. Great darkness will come on planet Earth. There'll be, there'll be natural disasters. There'll be a far, a famine and starvation. Billions of people will die because of the, uh, because of the lack of uh, economics, the lack of economy, the lack of finances, the lack of ability. The whole world will collapse into darkness and this man of sin, this leader of the world will rise up and say, I've got the answer, the Antichrist. And the world will follow after him because he'll be a miracle worker and a great orator and they'll follow him and be deceived because he is the man of sin, the Antichrist. And from that comes the mark of the beast and the economy is controlled and everyone is controlled by numbers and by facts. I haven't answered the question, how could this be? I'm going to answer it when we look at this chapter 16. In fact, this whole message today is to answer how could there possibly be ground troops, how could there possibly be the war that's coming when we have missiles that'll go where they go and the ships and we have the bombs and how could this possibly be? And I'm going to show you, God is prepping the world for his son Jesus Christ in this chapter 16 to come and fight in the battle of Armageddon. God the Father is preparing to these seven bowls of, or vows of the wrath of God. He's preparing the world for Jesus Christ to return the second time with his church and with his angels to win the battle in the battle of Armageddon. The 14th chapter of Zechariah, Jesus Christ comes to the Mount of Olives. The mountain splits. We see in this, this judgment, as Jesus comes, the city of Jerusalem will split into three parts. There'll be an upheaving. Islands will disappear. Mountains will disappear. Earth will become flat. Everything gets flat. And the only place elevated will be Jerusalem. For there, in the millennial reign, there'll be that great temple of God, and Jesus will rule and reign supreme for 1,000 years in an elevated place on planet Earth. That's coming in the future. God is very distraught about what he's about to do, but he knows it's necessary. Look at verse 2. The first vial of the angel that pours out. Notice what he does. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome, grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. You know, I read that, and I thought, well, God's just getting even. no. God don't have to get even, even God's God. The Bible says that a great grievous sore, running pussy, running cancer-like, oozing sore will come up on, of all places, the exact place they took the mark of the beast or on their hand or their forehead. That's the place. And so God is putting a mark on top of a mark. What is God doing in this? 
I'm told that the computer chip that they put in, in the forehead or in the hand, they hadn't, they hadn't perfected it yet. And I'm told if it leaks, it causes a grievous and running and, and noisome sore. At the chip, and I don't know if that's what it'll be. I don't know if it'll be a chip or whether it'll be some kind of tattoo. I don't whether maybe a hidden something that's detected by light. I don't know. We'll, you know, I, I was about to say we'll see. No, I won't be here. We won't see. Hello. But there'll be a mark, and no one can buy or sell unless they have that mark. God pours out His vow, the first one upon the earth. What happens? A sore comes up on the very mark that they take in order to buy and sell. What is God doing? He's marking them for slaughter. He's marking them for slaughter. Because they have rejected the living God. They've taken the mark of the beast. It is an unpardonable sin. They're damned forever. And God marks over their mark a grievous sore. He's marking them for slaughter. Because when Jesus Christ returns to earth with his church, and with, as Jude says, Enoch said, with myriads of angels and his saints, when Jesus Christ returns in Revelation chapter 19, he'll return, and angels, I have no doubt that angels will help Jesus take some people out. So how do you believe that? Because angels have taken people out before. You say, well, doesn't God know everybody who's got the mark and who don't? Yes, but the angels can make mistakes. You say, oh, I don't believe an angel can make mistakes. Why do you think we're here preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because an angel made a stupid mistake. And so God marks all the people that has the mark of the beast, and he marks them so the angels will know they're not to kill anybody unless they've got that rotten, nasty, runny sore. He's preparing them for slaughter. It's the reverse of Ezekiel chapter 9. It's the reverse. In Ezekiel chapter 9, the mark is to preserve, to save. But here in Revelation chapter 16, verse 2, the mark is to destroy so that angels will make no mistake. Did you know when angels start coming with Jesus Christ in the clouds of glory in that great battle of Armageddon, angels are not going to be nice to people? God's powerful angels will be fighting along beside their general, their master. They're king of kings and lord of lords. And we as a church are going to be riding on a white horse. And we're going to be doing this. Yeah. Well, when I take off on that horse, I'll be doing this. So I, I have a hard time believing that there's going to be literal horses. Really? These horses in heaven, they have... They're faster than a speeding bullet. These horses in heaven are angelic horses. They are, they are like the cherubims. They are like the swift flying um, angelic form. These horses are going to be in glorified bodies. These horses are going to be angelic. These are going to be white horses. They're going to be horses that can travel a, a sonic boom run. And, and you're, how many know if they're going to be horses like that in heaven, you're going to need a glorified body to stay in the saddle. And when Jesus Christ returns, someone said, is there going to be animals in heaven? Yes. 
There will be animals in heaven. You say, well, will my favorite dog be in heaven? I think you can have anything God wants, any, anything your heart desires in heaven, God can perform. I believe that. I don't believe animals merit eternal life, but I think we can merit memories and joy and blessings of past animals that we have enjoyed in life. Hello? I know some of you are sitting there saying, well, they don't have a soul. I didn't say they had a soul. I didn't say, the Bible says the soul of an animal goes downward. I didn't go to the grave. But I didn't say that, that all animals will go to heaven. Everybody knows all dogs go to heaven. Everybody knows all dogs go to heaven and all cats go to hell. Everybody knows that. Oh, you don't know that? You're dumber than I thought. So the first thing, the first vow, I know you cat lovers hate me now, but the, the first vow poured out was to mark people for slaughter. The second, verse 3, the second vow that's poured out, notice it says in verse, two, uh, verse 3, the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea and it became as the blood of dead men and every soul that's an animal died in the sea now in Revelation 8 verse 8 it says that they sounded the second trumpet and a third it looked like a meteor hitting the sea and a third of the creatures of the sea were killed but here in verse Three, it says the whole sea is made not dead men's blood, but like dead men's blood. You say, well, what's a dead man's blood like? It, it is, it is uh, clabbered. It has become more firm than jello. A dead man's blood turns blackened and it turns hard. It said, as dead man's blood. So what is God doing after he marks everybody for slaughter that has the mark of the beast and, and, and have taken the mark of the beast. Verse 2, he's given them notice the, and so he's marked them for slaughter. Verse 3, he's taken the sea and now it's not just a third of the sea, it's all of it. All of the sea is turned into dead men, like dead men's blood. God takes out the sea. Did you hear what I just said? God takes out the sea. What, what purpose would God have in taking out the sea? I mean, the fish in the sea are no danger to God. In fact, no man's a danger to God. But the, the, the truth is, the sea is turned to dead man's blood because ships can no longer navigate. He has stopped the traffic of all naval fleets. All the naval ships, battleships, are now useless. He's preparing for the Battle of Armageddon. You want to know why it happens in a day of missiles and because God's going to fix them missiles and going to fix them planes. He's preparing it for the return of his son, Jesus Christ. 
Look at verse, look at, look at the third seal, uh, the third vial, the fourth vial, and the fifth vial. Verse 4 through 11. Verse 4 through 11, you have the, uh, the third vial in verse 4, pours out upon the fresh waters. You have the um, fourth angel pour out his vial upon the sun, heat melting the snow caps, emerging the cities, scorching men. Verse 9, you had the fifth angel pour out his vial upon the seat of the beast. The kingdom was full of darkness. That means they gnawed their tongues for pain. They, the darkness means insanity and pain. The sixth angel poured out its vial. And then we see a change. Euphrates River dries up. But I want to point out something. In the angel of the waters, the angel over the waters, remember he, he gave God a, a praise for what he was doing. Remember that? Last week we preached about that. But I think the point out of the third angel, the vow, was God was going to give them a taste of thirst. God through the, God through the um, third vow, fourth vow, fifth vow, was giving them a taste of hell. Verse 5, they needed thirst. Verse 4 and 5, they had, they had thirst. In hell, there'll be thirst. Verse 8, he pours out the sun upon men, scorched their bodies. He gives them a taste of hell. The fifth angel pours out his vial upon the beast in the kingdom full of darkness, and he gives them the taste of outer darkness in the lake of fire and pain, gnawing their teeth, gnawing their tongues for pain. So God gives them in the third angel what it's going to be like in hell for thirst. And the fourth angel, he's given them a taste of hell. The fifth angel, a taste of darkness, confusion, and pain. But I want you to notice what they did in verse 9. After they're scorched with sun, blaspheme God. What did they do in the last part of verse 9? And they repented not to give God glory. Notice again when the fifth angel pours out his vow. Verse 11 says, and they blasphemed the God of heaven again in their pains and their sores, and they repented not of their deeds. There it is, twice. God gives them a taste of hell. He gives them a taste of pain. He gives them a taste of what they're going to have. He gives them a taste of their confusion and the darkness in hell. He gives them a taste of hell. And what do they do? They blaspheme God. And not only did they blaspheme God, they refused to repent. God is showing what he's doing, he is just, he is correct, he is right in what he's doing. These people will not serve God. These people are given a chance to serve God, but refuse to serve God. And I want you to know there's a world out here that refuses to serve God. They want to serve their own flesh, serve their own ways, live the way they want to live. They reject church, reject Bible, reject Jesus Christ, reject the goodness of God. And to their detriment, they're going to die, burn in hell forever. But God has done everything he can to save them to the death of Jesus Christ, his son Jesus. 
So we see so far that God has put a mark on everybody that's taken the mark of the beast, the mark of slaughter. We see that God has taken out with the second veil, the sea. He's taken out the naval fleet, battleships, so they can't navigate. The third, fourth, and fifth angel, he uh, vows, he shows them a taste of hell. He gives them a chance to repent. Would they repent? No, but God is showing his justness. The sixth angel, or the sixth vow, the angel pours out his vow. I want you to see this because it's real important that you see this. Verse 12, this is the sixth angel, pours out his vow upon the great river Euphrates. The water thereof was dried up and the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And three unclean spirits like frogs. As a little boy, I know frogs are unclean. Come out of the mouth of the dragon, that's the devil. Out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist. Out of the mouth of the false prophet, that is who, who he is. He's an anti-preacher, a false prophet. And they are spirits of devils working miracles which go forth into the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them together for the great day of God Almighty. What are they doing? These unclean spirits, and John saw them like frogs. These unclean spirits coming out of the dragon, out of the beast, out of the false prophet. They're deceiving the masses. They're trying to explain to the nations, yes, you can have your Tower of Babel. You can have your utopia. You can have it. We can do this. We can make it through this. We can be our own God. And they're deceived. And they gather together for a battle. You've got to love this. God takes out not only the sea, and he takes out the great river Euphrates. Now, you've got to remember that in the ninth chapter, verse 14 and 15, you remember that there were four angels loose in the great river Euphrates, and those four angels rallied together, these armies, these de demon spirits, these demonic army hordes, and also mingles with men coming into a battle. Did John see demons, horses of demons? Yes, he did. But, but he saw in the spirit what the men in these battles were, deceived and full of wickedness. And he caused the great Euphrates to dry up. Now, the great Euphrates at this time probably was flowing very full. Probably the bridges, if I, I was going to Google and see how many bridges Euphrates got. Whatever they, if, whatever they have, it's gone. The water has washed it away. It's destroyed. There's no way to get across the Euphrates River. So God causes the Euphrates River to dry up. When the Euphrates River dries up, he's given opportunity to those that are de deceived by demon spirits to come down from the east. And they come down to cross the great, great Euphrates River. You say, why are they crossing the river? Don't we have airplanes? Don't we have missiles? I'll get to that in a minute. God is preparing the way for his son, Jesus. What did he do the first time? Mark men for slaughter. That took the mark. What did he do? Took out the sea, the naval battleships. What did he do? He gave them a taste of hell. So they did. Then he drives up the great Euphrates River. Now, the great Euphrates River is a battle. Or actually, it's a boundary line that separates Israel and their promised land into Iraq and Iran and into that portion of property. Now, 
the great Euphrates is huge. It travels from miles and miles and miles. It's, it's uh, flowing of water comes from Mount Ararat, where there's snow caps. But those snow caps have now melted. God has called this, caused this river to dry up so that armies can march across this great river, Euphrates. God is going to bring from the north... Well, let me just explain some things. East, the kings from the east, notice it says that he, that he dried up the river Euphrates so that the kings of the east could come. Um, let me read that to you. Prepare the verse 12. And the water thereof was dried up, speaking of the Euphrates, and the way of the kings of the east were, might be prepared. So the kings of the east is Pakistan. Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, China, Japan. Even though Japan's an ally with us, things can change in war. Korea, Persia, Eastern Europe, the two legs of the Roman Empire that Daniel saw. The revised Roman Empire, the Syrian army. This monster that came out in Revelation chapter 13. I think further north, we have Russia. Now, I'm not going to get into a lot today about the, uh, the battle of Russia down into uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. And the reason I'm not going to get a lot into that is because nobody really knows. You know, there's a lot of, you know, you know why they call um, Russia going to come down and invade Israel? You know why they, they, it doesn't say it precisely. It just said, Rush sound, Ross sounds like Russia. That's not a real good reason to call it Russia because it sounds like Russia, Rosh. Now, where do we get these names? We get them in the 10th chapter of Genesis. Remember the flood? Chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, and the 9, and in chapter 10, we have three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Japheth, historians tell us, went to the east and the north, and there he spawned children such as Gomer, Magog, and the other towns. I'm not going to go into the scriptures, but you can look at it for yourself in the 10th chapter. Now, Gog is not really a, a people. It's a prince. It's a, it's a leader. Magog is a people or a nation. Now, I believe with all my heart. Well, let me go there. I said I wouldn't go there, but let's go to Genesis Anybody bored? Let's go to Genesis. Let's go to Genesis chapter 10. This is after the flood. Notice verse 1 and 2. These, now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were born, sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madaniah, Javan, 
Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus, and the sons of Gomer, Adonis, Rephah, and Torgamath. I'm not going to get into all them names because they didn't know how to name kids in those days. By the way, some of you don't know how to name them in these days. But anyway, but we'll get into that. If I go to the book of Ezekiel, which I think I'm going to, we'll get into that. But the truth is, when we look at the battle of Rosh, when we say Rosh, it might, well, historians tell us that Japheth went north and into the east and went high up in the north where Russia is. So I'm not, you know, that's what historians say. Bible don't say it, but historians say that. Geographical people say that. But we need to understand something. Ezekiel talks about it in 38 and 39. He, he mentions some of these names. In the 20th chapter of Revelation, we have Gog and Magog mentioned. So, the, so without going into elaboration too much, I just want to say this. I believe that Russia... Iran, Iraq, Persia, parts of Europe, I believe this will be an ongoing battle. This battle could take place before the rapture, the first one. Either way, they're losers. God's going to put a hook in their jaw, they lose. But what they'll do is they'll keep coming against Israel and they'll keep losing and, and I find about three accounts where they come against Israel. Maybe at the start of the Great Tribulation or just before the rapture, just after. Then during the Great Tribulation and then culminating at the Battle of Armageddon, they're wiped out. Three times they're up. Three times they strike out. Now let's move on. Now that I've totally confused you, let's move on just a little bit. I want to... I want to go back to Genesis chapter 10. I want to point out something. Noah, this, this uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth came out of the ark in Noah's day. And then the Tower of Babel was erected after the flood. And the Tower of Babel was a place where they said they would ascend and be like the most high God. And God said himself, nothing will be impossible to them. So he's not talking about brick and mortar. He's talking about technology, talking about abilities. And God said, I'm going to confound their language. Now, some people believe that, how many ever looked at a map of the world uh, and it looked like it, it was, they used to fit together? Anybody seen that? I mean, when I was in school, I looked at the map of the world, and it looked like all these land masses could be put together like a puzzle. The reason they can is because at one time, they were one land mass. At one time, they were one land mass. Now, whether they were separated, I looked it up on Google, and you know if it's on Google, it's got to be correct. I looked it up on Google, why are the land masses separated? And they said, 200 million years ago, it began to the plates of the earth begin to shift. And I'm thinking, boy, they must really be bright and intelligent to figure out 200 million years ago when we got a Bible. And it was much earlier than 200 million years ago. It was just a few thousand years back. What happened was, 
either in the flood, the nations were breaking apart in the flood, or it could have happened when God confounded the language of the uh, Tower of Babel and God made their languages change and the earth was scattered. Uh, verse 25, chapter 10. And under Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. Some could say Peleg, Peleg. For in his days was the earth, what? Divided. So I lean to the possibility that when God confounded the language, divided the landmass apart, it was one landmass. When God divided it, he sent one language this way, one language this way, one language this way. He confounded the languages, sent them out, and that's where you got different nationalities, different languages. In the Great Tribulation, I believe God's going to put them back together. Why? For his son Jesus. That's why. Because Jerusalem's going to be elevated. The earth's going to be one big landmass. And King of Kings and Lord of Lords is going to rule and reign on planet Earth for 1,000 years. You say, oh, I can't believe that. Well, let's look at it a little more carefully. Verse 19. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island did what? Fled away. And every mountain did what? Were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail of, out of heaven, every stone about a hundred pounds, the weight of a talent. And the men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hell, and the plague thereof was exceeding great. This is, this is just before the return of Jesus in Revelation chapter 19. The islands disappear maybe because they're just put back together like a puzzle. The mountains disappeared because there's a great topographical uh, change in landmass. Jerusalem's going to be elevated high in the new uh, temple where Jesus rules and reigns. King David will be there as king over Israel, and Jesus Christ will be king of kings and lord of lords over the whole planet. It'll be one big landmass. You say, how can you believe that? Well, read Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1 through 5, and you'll see that when Jesus comes, everything crumbles. Everything just, you know, melts in the presence of God. And Jesus comes down off the Mount of Olives into the Hebron Valley. His vesture is dipped in blood. That's not his blood. That's the blood of those he's fighting. And he conquers and rules and reigns. And he becomes the king of kings and lord of lords. You say, now, let me answer another question. How can this be? You got airplanes, you can fly. Why do they have to cross the great Euphrates River? Because God's going to ground them. God's going to ground them. Before Jesus Christ comes, God's going to ground them. Not to protect God, because God's going to fill the air. God's going to ground them so that they will be forced to go across the Euphrates River and congregate in Megiddo. Memory took out the sea. Look at verse 17. 
Are you learning anything today? Look at verse 17, chapter 16 of Revelation. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. Where? Into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple. This is God from the throne saying, it is done. He has prepared the way for Jesus to return. In this seventh trumpet vial poured out upon the air, God is taking out air traffic control. Isn't that awesome? God is taking out air traffic control. Planes won't be able to fly because of the lightning, because of the storms. Planes will not be able to navigate because of the lightning, because of the dust storm, because of the sulfur, because of the wrath. Because of, and God's going to do something to ground the airplanes, to ground the battleships, and they're going to be forced to travel across the great Euphrates River, the eastern kings and the northern, probably Russia included, and they're going to come across, they're going to gather and congregate in the valley of Armageddon. And there in Armageddon, they'll congregate to get ready to fight the great battle of Gog, the great battle of God coming against uh, Israel. And Jesus Christ will come touch down on the Mount of Olives, sweep down off that mountain, angels with him, church with him, glorious God moving, and Jesus Christ is going to come rule and reign forever, and there he will set up a kingdom for 1,000 years. All right, let me show you something. I felt a little bit of hesitation in the clap right there, in the applaud. And we want to applaud Jesus Christ for all that he does. But notice this. Revelation chapter 19. He's coming. He's coming. Verse 11. And I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he did judge and make war. His eyes are as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. That's not his blood, but that's his enemy's blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven follow him, the angels in the church, on white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp two-edged sword, uh, a, a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. And, and uh, uh, he had on his vesture and on his thigh the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Maybe someone can help me with this. Remember the song they used to sing, he's treading out the, the vineyard where the grapes of God are stored. How many remember that name of that? What is the name of that song? What? I've got two songs going here. Which one? You know what it is? You know, Carl, you know what the name of it is? All right, you got homework for the rest of the week. But anyway, there's a song that talks about Jesus coming, his army. The army marches on. He's treading out the wine press. And what you see in this 19th chapter of Revelation, as you see, the way they did wine back then, is they took the grapes and put them in a wine vat. They took their shoes off. They didn't have 
socks. They just took their sandals off. Hopefully they washed them. But if they didn't wash them, they got in that vat and they stomped out them grapes and they made the juice ooze between their toes. And boy, that made really good wine. But in the process of stomping out the grapes, they get their garments soaked in red-looking blood. It's not blood, but red. And that's the picture you have here when Jesus Christ returns. He's treading out the vineyard. One place the angels are doing the harvest, like the wheat harvest. The other part of the chapter, he's doing the, the, the grape, the, the vineyard. I think that's in the 14th chapter, Revelation. I'm so excited because I see now how it's going to happen. I always wondered, how could this be? How could there be so many foot soldiers? How could there be such a war on the ground when we can sit in, in Washington, D.C. and push a button and boom? You know, how can this be? Well, don't misunderstand me. They'll do that before the church is taken or they'll do that after we're taken. It will happen. But sooner or later, it will be put to an end. And when God says, I'm going to clear the air, he's going to pour out that vial, that last seven vial on the air, and he's going to stop air traffic control. Missiles won't launch. Planes won't fly. Everybody's going to be forced together in the Valley of Megiddo because Jesus Christ is going to stomp them grapes out. He's going to conquer them armies. And angels are going to look for sores on people's foreheads or hands so no mistake will be. And he will conquer and rule and reign the earth for 1,000 years and the church will rule with him for 1,000 years. Now, if you can't look at chapter 16 after I preach this morning and say, wow, I see it, I see it, it's there. God was prepping the earth for Armageddon to send his son, Jesus Christ, to win the battle, even in our modern day age. That's pretty good stuff, isn't it? Stand with me. We're going to give an invitation. My question is, has God put his mark on you? I don't mean for bad. Has God put a good mark on you, a mark that you're saved, a mark that you're going to heaven? Are you one of God's children that's been marked and sealed with the Holy Spirit of God? If you're not, I'd like for you to come to this altar today, not to me and not to the church, but I'd like for you to come to this altar and beg God for forgiveness. You don't hear preachers say that much anymore. Come and beg God for forgiveness. Come and plead with God for mercy. You don't hear much preachers saying that anymore. What you do hear preachers saying, well, come forth and receive Jesus. I'll take my hand and we'll just receive Jesus. You know, just, isn't Jesus so lucky for you to come to him? No. You're doomed unless Jesus accepts you. And if you come with the pulling of the Holy Spirit, if you come with the convicting hand of God, then you can come and God will give you the gift of repentance. And the gift of repentance must be present in order to be saved. You don't just go up there and say, well, now I just received Jesus as my personal Savior and go back out in the world, smoke your weed, drink your beer, cuss like a sailor, live like the devil, do what you want to do. You can't do that. You've got to be changed. You've got to be changed. And so you just come to the altar and 
and, and say, God, if you'll have me, I really need you. I can say this without any reservation, because I know I'm right. I said this Wednesday night. I'm in your prayer room. I hear you pray. I mean, I'm not sneaking around listening to you pray, but I know what you do. One of your prayers in your prayer room is always, Jesus, please forgive me. I'm sorry. Well, why are you doing that? Jesus died for your sins on the cross of Calvary because sin's still present. And that's why it's not wrong to ask God over and over again for for forgiveness, and it's not wrong to ask God over and over again for healing. Don't listen to the preachers that tell you just ask once. You ask God to heal you. You can confess your healing after you ask God to heal you. But let's remember this one thing. If you're sick, go to the doctor. If the doctor's wise, been to school, knows what he's doing, take your medicine. Refrain from too much bacon and sausage. Eat right. Go to the doctor if you're sick. Take your medicine if it's needed. Eat right. Have a good diet. Get exercise. But keep God in your prayers. Keep God and ask God because ultimately God heals. Medicine don't work without God. Doctors don't heal without God. They're on God's side. It all is in the mix. Amen. It's all in the mix. Most of you in this room, you had been dead already if it wasn't for a good doctor. God gave you a good doctor, you had been dead if it wasn't for a good doctor. And most doctors that are doctors today are there because they went through a trauma in their life. Maybe a child died, maybe a spouse died, maybe a brother or sister died. And those doctors go into that medical field because God calls them into it. And they become a doctor. They're working on God's side. That don't mean they're Christian, don't mean they're perfect, but they are on the same side. What heals is God. And God can instantly, supernaturally heal us. I don't know why I'm going there today, but I just want you to understand that God wants to heal you. He wants to save you. He wants to bless you. Amen. He wants to be your God and your Savior. Altars open. God, go ahead.